Amen. Let me ask you as we come now to the scripture to turn to the book of Acts in the New Testament, Acts in chapter 9. I want to read the first 25 verses. Acts chapter 9, verses uh, 1 to 25. And, uh, keep your Bibles with you. We're going to be running through some verses this morning uh, through the sermon, so um, keep them open to, uh, even after we read. As we come now to the scripture, as always, let's uh, pray together. We call this the prayer of illumination because we're praying that God will open our eyes and give us light in this word through it to be able to to see and to understand and believe. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would do just that. Um, give us light, real spiritual light uh, from and through this word um, so we can really see what's here and, and, and that you would enable us then even, God, to believe. For those of us who've been believing for some time that our faith would be strengthened. For those perhaps whose faith is weak, then it would be um, revived and restored. And, and even for those who this morning come with no faith, that their faith, that faith would be born in them, even as we read this word. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Book of Acts, chapter 9. Verse 1. But Saul was, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was out without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For he is, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority uh, from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. And then he rose and was baptized. Taking food, he was strengthened. 
For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And many days had passed. The Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But the disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And then we say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, for a number of weeks, uh, we've been considering encounters with Jesus, that is, people encountering Jesus, and, 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 and asking the question, so what happened? What happened when people encountered uh, Jesus? Um, up to uh, Easter, we considered encounters that people had with Jesus when he was uh, upon the earth. And, and since, we've been considering um, encounters with the resurrected Jesus. Last week and this week, we're actually considering encounters with the resurrected and ascended uh, Jesus. Uh, for we see here uh, this Saul of Tarsus meeting, encountering the risen and ascended uh, Jesus. Almost everybody knows this story. I mean, uh, this this is one of those uh, famous conversion stories, if you will. It's famous in one sense because of, of the significance of its importance in the history of the church. I mean, <clears throat> this Saul of Tarsus became known as Paul, the apostle of Jesus. And he's the one who spread the gospel throughout the known world, if you will. Um, He was one, uh, if you read the book of Acts, beginning in chapter 12, really, throughout the remainder of this history of the early church that that Luke has written for us, uh, we see it's it's primarily about Paul and his missionary journeys. He, He wrote about a quarter of the New Testament for us. In fact, he's the primary interpreter of what Jesus did. We read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we find... Uh, who Jesus was, his identity, and we find what he did in dying and being raised. But the interpretation of all of that, while there in the Gospels in some sense, is, is, is really fleshed out through the epistles, through the writings, the rest of the writings in the New Testament, very much through Paul. We understand the work of Christ through his writings, inspired by the Holy Spirit, of course, breathed out by God, but uh, through through him. So this is a significant conversion because we, we realize that the gospel was made known then and even now through this one, Saul of Tarsus, Paul, the apostle. But it's also famous because of its drama. I mean, let's let's face it. We read this, and and it, it's it's a very dramatic account. Um, few, if any, have had conversion uh, experiences 
like this one. There have been dramatic ones in the history of the church, but, but this one, of course, we realize because here is one who was indeed a persecutor of the church, a terrorist, really, one who no doubt was feared by, by people just because of, of what he was doing uh, in the church. Uh, if we look, for instance, in chapter 7 of Acts and verse 58, uh, we, we read these very chilling words about this one Saul. Uh, last week, uh, we talked about Stephen, the first martyr, being stoned because of his faith. Rocks thrown at him until he was dead. And he encountered the risen Jesus as he looked into heaven, into glory, and saw Jesus standing to receive him. But notice this at the very end. It says, Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him, they being the ones that were going to stone him, him being Stephen, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the, at the feet of a young man named Saul. This very one. He was the executioner. He was the one who, who gave approval for Stephen to be killed. Then chapter 8 and verse 1 we read this. And Saul approved of his execution. That is Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were uh, all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men uh, buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. I mean, can you picture this? This really happened. Can you hear it? Can you see in your neighborhoods this madman, really, crazed Man, what's it say? Ravaging the church, breaking down front doors, grabbing men and women, husbands, wives, moms and dads, out of their house to throw them into prison. I mean, think about it. That's who he, that's who he was. And then chapter 9 and verse 1, we read this, but Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. I mean, breathing threats. I mean, that, that's to help us to visualize this, to, to smell his breath, if you will, his anger against the disciples of Jesus. Could there ever have been anyone who hated followers of Jesus more than Saul of Tarsus did? We've had tyrants and so forth over the history of the church uh, persecute us and so forth. But, but no one like this, really. And he said he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord and went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that he may, um, so, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. In other words, he's already, he's already gotten them to run from Jerusalem, but that's not enough. Now he has to hound them. He has to chase them down to wherever they go, Damascus at this point, so he can bring them back. You get the sense that once he did that, he'd say, okay, now I know there's other Christians in this uh, city. Let me go there. And I know there are Christians in this city. Let me go there. You you get that sense of, of what he would be doing in all of this. And then if we flip over to chapter 22 in Acts, Paul is now, uh, talking about his life himself. He's describing himself. These other Luke was describing him. But now this in Acts 22 is Paul making his defense in front of a group of people about 
who he is, indeed what he was. So in Acts 22, verse 3, we have this. He says, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus in uh, uh, Cilicia, uh, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, great famous teacher, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders uh, can bear witness. Uh, From them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those uh, who are there and bring them uh, to Jerusalem to be uh, punished. Paul, again, he admits it. He lays it out. He says what he was doing. Then in Acts 26, we have another of Paul's defense where he's explaining who he was. This is how he describes himself. Um, he says, I was convinced that I ought to do many things. This is uh, chapter 26, verse 9. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many uh, of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote um, against them, just like he had done with Stephen. And I punished them often in all the synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And so there isn't anybody we should think lower of than Saul of Tarsus. Maybe in all of history. I don't know. I can't make that judgment. But... But here he is, and he was persecuting, it says in a number of these passages, what he referred to then as the way. That's how Christians were known, the way. Uh, No doubt, uh, because they often, I suspect, quoted Jesus when he says, I'm the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, the message of the gospel of Christ is that it is the way. And then the good news is that it is the way that does reconcile sinful humanity to God, sinners to God. It really does, if we could say it this boldly, it really does work, if you will. It really is the way. So there doesn't need to be any other way other than this way. And this is God's way. And and the message of the church has always been that there's salvation uh, through Christ and only through Christ. There's reconciliation uh, with God only through Jesus. He's come to do what was necessary to be done so that human beings could be reconciled, joined together, forgiven, declared righteous, justified, as we say, um, before God. He did it. He's the way. We are known as the way. The, the earliest um, sermons even preached, for instance, in Acts chapter 4, As the apostles are speaking of Jesus in verse 12, we have it like this. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by which, uh, given among men by which we must be saved. It's through Jesus, you see. And so Paul in Saul of Tarsus in his day, as many in our day, take offense at that. No, no, no. I want my own way. Well, why should it be that way and not this way? You see, and Saul's way, of course, was to say, I'm a child of Abraham. And thus, 
I have an automatic footing with God. I have an automatic in with God. I'm automatically, I automatically belong to Him. And I have this law, and I'm a Pharisee, and I'm, I'm doing all I can. I'm zealously uh, living a life according to this law. Thus, God will accept me on that, on that basis. Well, on the one hand, as Paul would come to realize, he had it wrong about Abraham. Abraham uh, was accepted by God. Not on the basis of what he did. Not on the basis of even obedience to the law. The law hadn't been given then. But Abraham was counted righteous by God on the basis of faith. Not on the basis of anything he did. Genesis fifteen six. But even the law, even the law was, was, as Paul would later say, was meant to lead us to Christ. Because it was a shadow of everything Christ is, would be, and do. He would obey it. He would take its penalty. And by believing him, you see, then we might be, would be saved. So, so Paul is angry against this, this way. Dramatic conversion. He meets Jesus, uh, the risen Jesus, on this, on this road. And, 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 and what's fascinating is Jesus says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And, and what we see there is this close relationship, we can even say this union between Jesus and his church, between Jesus and his people, between Jesus and believers. That if anyone comes against believers, they come against Jesus, if you will. And they come against Jesus, they come against believers. And so Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? If I was Saul, I would have said, I, I, not, I don't even know who you are. I'm not touching you. And, and, and Jesus would say, yes, you are. See, the people of God have always been known as the apple of God's eye. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I know that I have to be careful. I have an optometrist sitting here, but but my eyes are very sensitive, and and, and I'm a Florida kid, so uh, I love walking on the beach. Not right now, but when they actually should open. But but, but I love walking on the beach, and 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 often what happens when you walk on the beach, a little grain of sand gets in your eye, and it's amazing that that one little grain of sand stops everything. I mean, you just have to stop. It just irritates you. Your eye begins to water. In sympathy with your eye, your nose begins to run. Uh, and everything stops until you can deal with this grain of sand in your eye. And God's like that with his people. He says, if you mess with them in any way, shape, or form, I know it. And I stop. And I myself bring myself to bear on that situation. And so here was Jesus countering Saul. Because Jesus was being persecuted. Jesus was being touched when his people were being touched. Can I just grab a parenthesis with you? This virus that's hitting us, Jesus knows. He really does. And, 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 and so we can trust him as believers. We can trust him that he knows about this. It's a, he, 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 if we could say it this way, it touches him. And, and, and because it touches us. And in his high priestly 
compassion. He's with us. So just, this isn't what this sermon's about. But just trust him. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Be prudent, but don't be afraid. Be wise, but don't be afraid. He, he knows. He's with you. Even if you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He's still with you. He still knows. Trust him. So what I want to think about this morning with you in, in this great conversion of this Saul of Tarsus that's so significant in the history of the church and so dramatic as we read it. What I want to ask is this question. So, so what happened? I mean, what, what was really going on here? What do we discern here for not only Saul of Tarsus, Paul's life, but our lives as well as, as he encountered Jesus? What can we learn from Saul's encounter with Jesus for our own life? And I just want to highlight two things. One, how Paul understood it, uh, that's what it meant. And, and secondly, then, the implications for us, the implications for our lives. First, I think this. And what we learn here is that our salvation is a work of God. That our salvation is a work of God. Uh, John Stott um, an Anglican, um, really great missionary theologian, passed away a while ago. Um, put it like this. He said, if we ask what caused Saul's conversion, only one answer is possible. What stands out from the narrative is the sovereign grace of God through Jesus Christ. God did not I'm sorry, Saul did not decide for Christ, as we might say. On the contrary, he was persecuting Christ. It was rather Christ who decided for him and intervened in his life. This evidence is indisputable. Let me, be, let me read that again. Stott says, if we ask what caused Saul's conversion, only one answer is possible. What stands out from the narrative is the sovereign grace of God through Jesus Christ. Saul did not decide for Christ, as we might say. On the contrary, he was persecuting Christ. It was rather Christ who decided for him and intervened in his life. And this evidence is indisputable. As that says, this was his sovereign grace, the sovereign grace of God. What do we mean by that? Well, sovereign is one who possesses supreme and ultimate authority and ultimate power. So he's saying that Saul of Tarsus was converted, was saved because of God's authority in his life and over his life and his power to change him from one who was a persecutor to one who was a Believer from one who was an opponent to one who was a proponent, if you will. That God had the power and authority to change Saul of Tarsus' heart and mind. Even though Saul of Tarsus didn't have that power in and of himself. 
And then we say it's grace. And by, by grace, uh, we mean um, that, that he didn't deserve it. And really, when we talk about grace from a Christian perspective, uh, we, we speak of it not simply of what we don't deserve, that it's unmerited, but rather that we're ill-deserving of it. We actually deserve the opposite. I was thinking this morning, and I should have prepared this better, but I was thinking this morning of, uh, actually just as I was walking over, of an illustration that a dear friend of ours um, often gave of grace. And it's a, a friend of our church whose name uh, is Jerry Bridges. He passed away a couple of years ago, but uh, was often in this pulpit and in our previous pulpit uh, as well. But... Um, and since it's Mother's Day, this is a, a story that, that he referenced, Jerry did, his mom. And he said that during the Depression, um, there were those who would travel around uh, homeless, no work, and they would come door to door often for meals, for food. And he said at times his uh, mom would prepare a meal for a man who was without food, and she would serve it to him. On their porch. And Jerry said, that that gives us the sense of grace. She didn't charge for it. She didn't make the man work for it. She just gave it to him. And so he didn't earn it, if you will. He just received this meal. And while that was a gracious act, it wasn't grace as we think of grace in in the scripture, you see. Because it isn't just uh, that he didn't earn it and she gave it to him because when we think of grace from the scripture we actually deserve the opposite so let's twist the story around a little bit let's let's say this let's say that that this man uh was recognized by his mom when he came for the meal as someone who had broken into their house the previous week and stolen some valuables and he asked for a meal and she gave it to him oh now that's grace you see because not only did he not earn the meal he actually had earned the opposite of the meal he earned that she should call the authorities and that she should uh and so that he would be arrested and and she didn't do any of that so this was grace and so he says grace from god to us is god's goodness to sinners who deserve his wrath It's not just that we're undeserving, we're ill-deserving. We deserve his judgment, not his kindness. And we get his kindness. We deserve death, we get life. You see? We deserve hell, we get heaven. That's the sense of it, you see? And, and, And all of this comes through Christ. Because Jerry goes on and he, and he, and he kind of deepens the illustration. He says, he says this, he says, what would happen if, if, if this man was not only known to have burglarized the Bridges household, but, but other households in the area? And, and so his mom looked at that situation and said, I'm still going to feed him anyway, and I'm not going to call the authorities. And so what happened there is that, that her mercy would be in conflict with justice. Because justice would say, since he burgled the other people's homes as well, that, that she should call the authorities. But, but, but she doesn't call the authorities. So she gives mercy, but, but justice is left hanging. And that's the amazing thing about the work of Christ. That's why he is the way. Because mercy 
and justice come together in Jesus. Because Jesus takes the penalty for our sin, justice, so that God is, can be both just and the justifier of those who believe, both just and mercy. They're not in conflict. They're actually both satisfied in the grace that God gives to us. And we see that in Paul's life. I mean, not to be hyper judgmental, but let's face it. He deserved judgment. I mean, it doesn't take uh, a great moralist to see what he was doing was really, really, really bad. Even if you're not a Christian, just, just, just doing what he did was really, really, really wrong. So he didn't deserve it at all. He deserved the opposite. And Paul wasn't, as we might say in our day, uh, you know, a seeker. Uh, in fact, in, in the, the, the Acts chapter 26 passage, there's an uh, uh, interesting expression from the lips of Jesus that, that Saul of Tarsus was actually kicking against the goads, if you will. A goad being a stick to, to move the oxen along like a cattle prod. And he was kicking against it. So it wasn't like he was seeking. It wasn't like he was being wooed by the Holy Spirit in a way that he was sensitive to. None of that at all, you see. Uh, he uh, had already heard the gospel. He'd been there to hear Stephen's great sermon uh, and all that happened to Stephen. And yet still he said, no, this man deserves deserves to die. And some have said, well, uh, maybe God saw this Saul of Tarsus and said he needs a dramatic experience uh, to convince him. So I'll give him a dramatic experience. Or maybe he looked at this Saul of Tarsus and said he'll be a great apologist one day for the gospel because uh, he, he was an antagonist and now he's this proponent of the gospel. And so that'll be great. That'll move things along. I need someone like that. Or, or maybe he took uh, Saul of Tarsus because of his great zeal. Or maybe he took Saul of Tarsus because of his great intellect. Now, all of those may be true, but Paul never described his own salvation like that. He always said it was grace in the deepest and richest sense of that word, that it was he deserved, he knew what he deserved. And he knew that he wasn't seeking after God. But he knew God had come and changed him through Jesus. And by the power of the Spirit. And that all of this was of grace. Turn quickly to Galatians. And uh, chapter 1. Galatians, uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. All remember that by grace, EPC, GEPC. But Galatians in chapter 1. In verse 11. He says, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel was preached um, by me. The, the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I uh, did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. If you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my own people, among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father's. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone or so forth. But notice how he puts it in verse 15. He says, but when he who had set me apart 
before I was born and called me by his grace. Now, it's interesting. Paul uses that expression, uh, called me before I was born, in a similar fashion when he's talking about how God calls people to be his own. And he uses it in the context of two twins, Old Testament twins, Jacob and Esau. And he says, Jacob, I love, but Esau, I hated. I called one, but not the other. Even before they were born, I knew them. Now, that puts goosebumps in my back, but, but, but that's how Paul understood his coming to faith. In Philippians, please, in chapter 3, verse 12, he says, Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Make it my own. I'm an actor there. I'm doing the acting. But Christ Jesus has made me his own. He is the one who acted there. One other version says, uh, but, uh, but I press on to take hold of it because Christ Jesus has already has taken hold of me. You, you see how Paul says, I was taken hold of. I was the passive one in this. <laughs> I was taken hold of. Jesus came to me. And uh, that little expression made me his own or take hold of means to grasp or to arrest or to apprehend. Paul says, I was apprehended. I was apprehended by God. Then First Timothy, if you will, in chapter 1. I told you we'd need, you'd need your Bibles. First Timothy in chapter 1, please. In verse 12, Paul writes, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me uh, with faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. Now, notice this expression. Paul says that he gives thanks to God who gave him strength and judged him faithful, appointing him to this service. That's an interesting expression, given all that we've said. How can how can he be judged faithful? On what basis was Paul judged faithful? Well, he tells you first what he was not judged on, and secondly, what he was judged faithful on. He wasn't judged faithful because of his former life, because of anything that was about that. He goes on to describe himself. He says, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. It wasn't because he was was seeking God in any way at all. He was against him, really. That's not why he was judged faithful. And then he says, I, was, I received mercy. So he was judged faithful because he was given mercy. The mercy of God, not because of anything true of him, but he was given mercy. Because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. That doesn't mean because he was ignorant that he was not blameworthy. He was blameworthy. His ignorance, he meant, I didn't know God. And I didn't believe in him. I'm not judged faithful because in my former life, I, I, was, I, I knew everything about God and I believed. No, no, the opposite was true. The reason I'm being judged faithful is because of God's mercy and then verse 14, because of his, his grace overflowed. You might ask this question. How could a fox 
be judged faithful to watch over the hen house. Not because of his foxness. Only because of the mercy of the one who owned the hens. He says, my mercy is sufficient. My grace is sufficient for you to be faithful. That's how he was judged faithful in all of this. In fact, in Romans 3, Paul is very honest when he says, no one seeks God. Now, and we know that people do in various ways, but if it's a true seeking of the Lord, it's because the Holy Spirit's involved in this seeking. Because we know that our salvation is a gift of God. You see, that's one of the things that makes grace, grace. That illustration I, I mentioned a minute ago from Jerry Bridges about, about grace, he, he mentions this as well. He says that one of the differences between his mom's situation feeding this homeless person is that the homeless person asked first. The homeless person was the initiator. And he says the different, difference here is that God's grace is so thorough that he initiates, he comes to us, it's as if his mom would take a basket full of food and go through the streets and, and call upon uh, homeless people who had no intention of ever asking her or anybody else for food, that they were just going to die. And she would initially would give it to that's real grace. Going up to someone who doesn't deserve it, who hasn't earned it, going up to somebody who earns, who actually has uh, uh, earned the opposite. And coming to them when they would never come to you, when they never think of it, because of their pride, and you giving them all that they need. Oh my. Paul said, that's what grace is. Paul said, that's what happens to, happened to me. That's why I could write passages like this one in Ephesians and, and chapter 1. In verse 3, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in every way, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we be holy and blameless before him. And in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. I mean, I mean, Paul just just praises this out, if you will. It just comes out of him. It just flows from him. And, and we get it when we understand his life. How else would he explain it? How else would he tell anybody else how he came to faith? You can only say, I was apprehended. I was grasped. I was taken hold of. This is the grace of God, you see. And so we realize that we encounter Jesus and, it, it, and, and if his grace is effective, then, then what we see is everything changes in this encounter with him. So what happens? What's, what's the result of this? Well, we, we see repentance. Oh, my eyes are not open. Now, now open. I, I see. I, I really see the truth of my own life and the truth and the sufficiency of Christ. And so I turn from that and follow him. Repentance to faith. I find myself being thankful. I mean, in all of these expressions, as Paul talks about his own salvation, the salvation of the church, he says, I give thanks to God for. I don't give thanks to you for coming to faith. I give thanks to God for. His work, you see. 
Because as I've said so many times, we've talked about this. The thankfulness, gratefulness comes not when we compare what we have with what we need. Now, for most of us, we should be thankful because we have more than we need. And, and, and when we compare what we have with what we want, and most of us still can be thankful for most of us really do have more than what we want or sufficient. But real gratefulness comes when we compare what we have with what we deserve to have. And that's what drove Paul's gratefulness. That's what drives my gratefulness. That's what should drive our gratefulness. When I see what I have, life, and what I deserve to have, death. When I see what I have in Jesus, heaven, reconciliation with God. And then when I see what I deserve to have, hell, estrangement from God. And then I realize I have it because of no merit of my own. Then when I realize I have it because I deserve the opposite of it, to be thankful, you see, to be thankful. And then it leads me to to worship. You know, this passage in Ephesians that I just read, uh, praise be or blessed be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's given us every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. When I realize that, it it causes me to worship. In fact, after Paul's most detailed uh, discussion of salvation in Christ Jesus, Romans chapter 11, after he's gone through all of this, from Romans 1 through Romans 11, talking about our salvation, his final um, word is to worship. Verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, I I know there's much in this that confounds our philosophical categories and all of that. But how could it be otherwise? Have you ever thought about your own life? If you're a Christian, have you ever thought about your own life? Why are you a believer in Jesus? Now, you you may go through all the details and all the circumstances of how you got there, your thought process and all that. But but also, why you? Aren't there people smarter than you out there? Aren't there people that grew up maybe in better homes than you did? Even Christian homes? Aren't there people out there that seem to live a life that's moral and just and good? And yet they don't believe. They hear the gospel, you share it with them, other people share it with them. Maybe they've studied well. They're brilliant people who studied this Bible well and still leave it cold and say, no, there's nothing in there for me. Why do you believe? Why do I believe? Well, there's another factor here. That factor is the work of God. That's what Paul's trying to explain to us. He says, when you encounter Jesus, you encounter the sovereign one. You encounter the gracious one. And when his sovereign grace comes together in the context of your life, it changes, you believe. 
All the details are there, but you believe. So he says, trust him. And when that happens, you're thankful. When that happens, you worship. And not only that, when that happens, you experience a wave of humility, don't you? To realize, oh, I get it. It it humbles us. It humbles us in an appropriate way. It humbles us in a good way. humbles us before God. It humbles us before each other. Uh, Because, you see, I've admitted now that the best I can do in my life is to merit judgment. Once I've admitted that, it's really hard for me to put on airs. It's really hard for me to be proud. It's really hard for me to act like I'm better than anybody else. Humility. And that enables us to serve, you see. Because then I'm not above anyone else. I can, I can then serve. You remember Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he, he the master, uh, stripped down, uh, took the appearance of a servant and washed their feet. And he says, now this is how I want you to be. I want you to live like this. I want you to love like this. And we can't love like that if we're thinking ourselves better and above. We can only love like that. When we're willing to go underneath. When we're willing to be below. And that can only happen when we're humbled. But that happens when we come to faith. Because we realize what we deserve. And what we receive, you see. It enables us to persevere because because then we think, you know, this isn't... Uh, by my strength, it's by his. I didn't enter into this by my own wisdom. I, I shouldn't live by my own wisdom. I should live by his. I didn't come into this by my own strength. I should live by his. I didn't come into this by my own goodness. I, I, should, I, should, I should rely upon his, you see. And so I'm trusting that he'll enable me to persevere. Oh, now, there's all kinds of things for me to do in my perseverance. I need to read the word. I need to be in fellowship. I need to pray. Uh, I need to be about the things that would be pleasing to God. And all that, I get that. But I can trust that he'll enable me to persevere to the end. And and then there's a sense of boldness. I can be bold about my faith. Because I realize that if God has enabled me to believe, he can enable others to believe as well. If this Jesus, if encountering this Jesus can be so powerful as to change this Saul of Tarsus and even me, then surely as I share my faith, It isn't about my persuasiveness. It isn't about my power. It's about the sovereign grace of God in the life of another. And if you're listening and you're not a believer in Jesus, you say that I'm sunk because I can't do this. Well, you're right. Except that he can. Go to him. Seek him. Read his word. Ask him. Help me. In my unbelief. Key to this is we mustn't ever forget. You know, as I read through the scripture, uh, in Paul's letters particularly, he keeps coming back time and time again to who he was and what he is and who he is now because of the work of Christ. He, he never forgot. And in the classic Pilgrim's Progress, that great allegory from centuries ago, in the second part, when Pilgrim's wife and children are on their way to the celestial city. Uh, uh, Samuel, one of their sons, is speaking to this character called Mr. Greatheart. And the text reads, Now as they went on, Samuel said to Mr. Greatheart, Sir, 
I perceived that in this valley, my father and Apollyon, that is the devil, had their battle. But whereabout was the fight? For I perceived this valley is large. And the valley they were in was the valley of humiliation, the valley of trouble, the valley of difficult, the valley of difficulty. Mr. Greatheart responds this. He says, your father had the battle with Apollyon at a place yonder before us in a narrow pass just beyond forgetful green. And indeed, that place, forgetful green, is the most dangerous place in all these parts. For if at any time pilgrims meet with any brunt, it is when they forget what favors they have received and how unworthy they are of them. He says the most dangerous place to be is this place where we forget what God has done for us in Jesus, that it's his work. How is it that you came to faith? He did it. He enabled you. He changed your heart. He brought the word to you. He enabled you to believe it. Don't ever forget that. Once we do, we stop being thankful. We stop worshiping. We become prideful. We become bitter. Always. Always. Remember. Let's pray. Father, grant us the grace to remember, to meditate well on all that Christ has done uh, for us. I pray that this will resonate with us, that our salvation is from him. It's not our work. It's the work of Christ in us. Our lives, God, our conversion is not dramatic like Paul's. Probably many of us, like myself, can't remember not believing in you. But but we all know that however it is that we've come to repentance and faith, it's because of your work, not ours. That it's by your grace and your mercy in our lives. And we give you thanks. I pray in this moment for those who do not believe, perhaps even struggling to believe, and I pray, God, that you would meet them and overcome their unbelief. And Jesus, you will reveal yourself to them through your word in such a way that they'll say, yes, I do believe. Father, we're grateful that we can have times of worship because it's in these times of worships that worship that we remember and express that remembrance of all that you've done for us. So we're grateful that you've received our praise. We're mindful that we are not able to gather together as we would like, but we're grateful that you've kept us together in so many ways during this time, even for new relationships that you've begun may not have happened apart, of our, apart from our sheltering at home and some have deepened these relationships in our church, some in our neighborhoods. We're grateful that you've kept us safe during this time, though we know we've lost one. We pray that 
you would enable us to continue to love and care for each other. We know the financial impact of this may be greater in the months ahead than in the weeks behind. And so please enable us to be open with one another, sharing needs as they arise. Help us to be compassionate and generous with one another, meeting needs as they become known. Father, watch over our families. Strengthen our marriages. Bless our children. Be with our students, uh, particularly seniors in high school and college, as they face the disappointment of graduation ceremonies and parties postponed or canceled, but grant them the grace to receive affirmation from those they love for this milestone in their lives. God, as life opens up in the weeks ahead, may we as believers in Jesus be a model for our community of patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control, of respect, of love for our neighbors. May we not demand perfect decisions or perfect behavior from others, but may we strive to honor those around us by being mindful of their needs and their safety. And may we be willing to joyfully sacrifice our preferences and rights that others may be blessed. We pray, God, for those who are in leadership positions in health and government and business and education, that you would give righteous wisdom as decisions are made. We give you thanks and pray for those in our church whose work calls them to serve others outside their homes, those in healthcare and food service, fire, police, other necessary service sectors. Bless them, keep them. We pray that a vaccine may be quickly found, that lives will be saved. Father, for our church, that you'll help us as we begin to gather in small groups and even for worship, that all that we do will glorify you, that is, we'll reflect your love and compassion and your wisdom and grace. And even still, Lord, there's life that isn't directly related to the impact of this virus. We're grateful for the coming of spring and the new life that we see around us. Because we know still the difficulties that engulfed our world are still with us. We still see injustice and racism and abuse in home and addictions and hurts in and from relationships and so on. Father, please bring repentance and faith in Jesus. May we be faithful to all to which you call us. In Jesus' name.